Blog Talk Radio. And hello out there to Brooklyn and beyond. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And without further ado, let me bring on uh, our favorite guest, uh, I'd have to say, of uh, these podcasts, and that's uh, Mr. Carl Erskine, Brooklyn Dodgers pitcher. How are you doing, Carl? Hey there, thank you. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm uh, getting birthdays piled up. I'll have 92 come in December, but uh, doing well, coming back from a broken hip, uh, but I'm uh, I'm walking uh, with a walker and getting out, doing some uh, outside things, so uh, life is good. Well, I'm glad to hear you're on the men, Carl, and of course, I was going to wish you a, a happy early birthday. It's, it's pretty remarkable. It's uh, it's coming up uh, once more, and and you know it, it it's the time of the year your birthday was always in the off season, and that's basically what I wanted to talk about on this episode of the uh, Bedford and Sullivan podcast was kind of off season routines. You know, the hot stove is getting going. There's a lot of rumors going on, and uh, I, I guess we can start there because you know it, it's not like it was completely cool. Uh, you know, they I think they drum up a lot of uh, they're trying to drum up a lot of talk and and keep. Uh, people's uh, mind on baseball but you know back then you know obviously the contracts were different but what what were some of the the rumors you guys would hear in the offseason how how did that element of it affect you well actually you know the Dodgers had a very big farm system they had 790 players I think it was under contract in 26 different level farm teams so the guys always made a lot of fun out of uh, hypothetical trades. Uh, they're going to get you this winter, Erskine. Uh, you'll be a giant next year. <laughs> it never <laughs> happened, but it was uh, it was a lot of kidding went on about uh, the trades that could happen. But um, well, the off season was really off. Um, we had very little, if any, uh, workout uh, schedule or. Even on a rehab, somebody like myself, who had quite a few uh, days of arm trouble, uh, you were on your own. When the season ended, you just say goodbye to everybody. I'll see you in the spring. And that meant uh, October till mid-February, when the pitchers usually reported about two weeks ahead of uh, the March 1st uh, official opening of spring training. Uh, there was zero as far as the club uh, concerned with your health or workout or you were just uh, goodbye and we'll see you in the spring. So I did have arm trouble. Uh, I pulled a muscle on my shoulder pitching in the rain one one day and uh, I would throw in the wintertime at the YMCA gymnasium. Uh, I would just to keep my arm from uh, scar tissue from uh, bothering my shoulder so I own my own and I guess other guys would do it on their own if they needed it felt like they needed it uh, to have workouts in the off season now I I believe now and I'm not close to it as I was but uh, I think the players now have a regimen to follow in the off season um, they wouldn't they wouldn't they discouraged us from having weight training especially the pitchers. They didn't want any pitcher to build up any bulk, uh, any muscle. 
uh, binding or shoulders, arms. So they warned us not to use uh, weights. But we didn't know in those days how to actually schedule a weight program that strengthened the right muscles and didn't bulk you up uh, in the uh, the looseness of your uh, pitching delivery and pitching arm. So that's a major change. I think it's a year-round business now. I do believe that players are expected to come to spring training uh, in pretty good shape. Um, they used to just kind of warn guys that gained a lot of weight, like Jackie used to gain weight in the off season, and they would uh, in campy. They used to warn them, you know, about uh, the off season not gaining a lot of weight, but it really didn't have any prescribed uh, workout uh, schedule. We were just on our own. Thing because you know you see players like, uh, and, and I'm wondering whether you've paid attention to some of these players like Noah Syndergaard. And I'm going to bring up a couple Mets here: Noah Syndergaard and Stephen Matz. You know, Stephen Matz seems to get injured a lot, and so does Noah Syndergaard. And there was one uh, article a couple years ago. Uh, regarding him in the off season, you know, putting putting on like 20 pounds in his arms of of muscle, and and then he ended up you know getting injured rather quickly. Do you think that that has affected some of these pulls that we see with with some of these pitchers? Because in in a player like Matz's uh, uh, case, like when I conceptualize what he is and he's a southpaw, I always think to myself that you know he's this skinny little uh, uh, left-handed pitcher, but he he is a lot stronger. You can see in the arms that he's a lot stronger than you'd expect out of his type of, of, of pitcher. Well, that's an interesting observation because size normally is related to strength and speed is usually normally related to quickness of a smaller, uh, more athletic uh, player. Uh, that's not doesn't always hold true. Um the pitching arm is still somewhat of a mystery, I think. Uh, how does a guy 165 pounds uh, throw 95 and 96 miles an hour when a guy 6'3 and weighs 220, uh, his best fastball is 91? I mean, it's not related to size. Pitching The pitching arm is a, I don't know, it's a mystery in a way because some players can, some pitchers can throw and a pitch will move. Some pitchers can throw harder, but the pitch is straight. <clears throat> you want movement as a pitcher. Uh, that's what makes the ball foul off uh, and not be hit solid, is its movement. And it doesn't have to move much. If a, You know, there's an old saying when I was a kid, uh, baseball is the hardest game because you take a round bat and a round ball, and you're supposed to hit it square. Well, <laughs> That's the mystery of uh, pitching. If you move, if you get movement, you'll get a lot of foul balls, and uh, you harder to hit the ball on the sweet spot. But as far as size, uh, even in golf, I notice that some of the smaller players uh, are actually some of the longest hitters. And uh, in baseball, it's it's somewhat related to size, but there's a lot of pitchers who are. Um, very average size. They're not big, bulky uh, guys. And uh, <clears throat> so when scouts look for a player, 
a pitcher particularly, they want to see movement on that fastball. They want to see either a sinkering fastball or a very live arm that uh, gets a lot of foul balls. If you notice, most foul balls go up. Uh, that's because the liveness of a good live fastball arm uh, puts the ball above the, the center spot on the bat, and the foul balls are always go, almost always go up. Um, a sinker baller will get ground balls, but um, but anyways, related to size, uh, you can't really um, pitching in a way is, is all deception, uh, fooling the hitter, uh, having a delivery that's hard to pick up and. So there's a lot of components to a, to what a pitcher can bring to the mound to keep the hitter from getting the ball hit square, and uh, it's it's a learning process. You never you never quit learning. And pitching coaches now uh, have mastered what I thought was a good pitch in my day, but we didn't use it much. Was off speed. An off speed pitch is devastating. To a hitter, it just destroys his timing. And now, all of a sudden, suddenly, the off-speed pitch has now become a strikeout pitch. And in my era, the the wisdom was: you never throw an off-speed pitch when you're ahead in the count. That was a pitch you used for three and one, three and zero, oh, uh, three and two, when you were behind the hitter. And uh, I had a good off-speed pitch, but I didn't use it a lot because the old adage was you can't start a hitter off with an off-speed pitch. There's no contrast. Uh, That was the old thinking, but that's not right. Today, the off-speed pitch is is actually the biggest weapon that most a lot of pitchers have. And uh, you hear more about off-speed today than you ever did. Yeah, that is for sure. I mean, you know, if you set somebody up with a with a change up the first two pitches and then come in, you know, inside with the fastball in the inside corner, I, I can see how it could be used uh, backwards, if you will. Right. Well, it, it was a change of understanding somewhat. Uh, the old timers, uh, oh, they would throw a fit if you threw an off-speed pitch ahead in the count particularly if the guy got a base hit. And um, you, you do see home runs hit off of uh, off-speed pitches. That does happen. But there's so many fastballs thrown, and there's so many home runs hit off of fastballs that, uh, by comparison, uh, very few are hit off of uh, off-speed pitches. Usually, if it's hit hard, it's because it's high. Uh, a low off-speed pitch is very, very difficult to time. But if it's up above the waist, it takes a lot of the deception out of it. And then guys jump on it and hit it hard. But uh, if I were pitching again in my career, I think I would defy the old adages about not throwing an off-speed pitch when you were ahead in the count. It's now become a strikeout pitch. And I would have used mine a lot more. That's interesting to hear, you know, that you, you would have taken, you you believe that that's a, a proper evolution of the game. Yeah, I think, you know, you you often hear, often hear, talk about pitchers have movement. 
Well, if you think of it in the right way, off-speed is a change in movement. It destroys the batter's timing, and it it makes him commit too soon. Then, in most cases, you lose your power to swing because you've already committed your stride, and the bat is going to be coming late. Um, and I, I see some pitchers now... They have all kinds of uh, techniques to throw an off-speed pitch. They call a circle change. Uh, and some guys sort of palm the ball, throw it with all with their whole hand. And it's hard to get a lot of velocity that way. But you get a lot of arm motion and you get a lot of uh, uh, rotation. looks like a fastball. But, um, but I'm impressed today how pitching coaches have now – found out the secret <laughs> that I always kind of knew an off-speed pitch is devastating. It's it Hitters hate off-speed pitches. Uh, it, it just takes away the bat. And uh, so that's why there's so many variations of uh, the off-speed pitch. But it needs to be low always. Uh, you see a lot of balls almost in the dirt off-speed that are swung at and missed. And so that's a real weapon today for pitchers. Uh, there was a time when the Dodgers used me in spring training after my career to come down and teach. Uh, Bob Welch is a good example with the Dodgers, hard-throwing, 95 or so. And it's the hardest thing in the world to convince a guy that throws real hard that it's a good pitch to take something off the ball. It's it's just a mindset, and if if a hard throwing pitcher is trying to learn an off speed pitch, and a guy hits a home run off of it, he'll never use it again. He'll say, "I'm never <laughs> going to use that dump." They throw fastballs one after another and hit them in the upper deck. They just keep throwing them. <clears throat> but um, I guess enough about the off speed thing. But it is one of the changes, one of the dramatic changes in how pitchers pitch to hitters. A smaller strike zone has actually benefited pitchers, I think. In the beginning, I thought the high pitch was eliminated, was uh, too bad for the pitcher, that it would make him less effective. But pitchers have adapted to the smaller zone, and they get a lot of strikeouts because their focus is is tighter in a small strike zone. The second thing is strike zone, uh, being smaller does, you can now predict where the guy's going to hit the ball more often with a smaller strike zone. Thus has come the shift. And in my day, Ted Williams, they used to shift on Ted Williams. I don't think anybody else in my era that I knew of actually used a shift. Well, now with a smaller strike zone, it's more predictable where the hitter's going to hit the ball. And so the the shift has now become popular, not with the commissioner. He doesn't like it, but, <laughs> but uh, well, it, it takes away it takes away a lot of the it takes away a lot of the strategy, or it places a lot of strategy uh, on how you defend. And you see you see players now playing deep in the at grass, way back of the infield. Uh, those are all changes, I think, related to the smaller strike zone. Do you think that uh, they're going to do so? I know that they they were talking about the to- uh, possibly 
implementing some rules to to limit the shift and and do you think that that's an appropriate response to it? You know, what was it? Willie Keeler, the old timer, said, "You, how do you hit?" He said, "I hit them where they ain't." <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, well, that's the whole thing with defense. Um, now, with the laptops and with the all the numbers that are collected and all the uh, strategies that go with knowing how this guy hit over the last fifty times at bat. Uh, you see a lot of line drives right at the outfielders. Uh, now, that always happens some, but uh, they play extremes more today uh, in infield and outfield. They, they play more extremes today because they got more information. And, you know, numbers don't lie. They, if a guy hits balls in the air 90% of the time, that's going to tell the defense something about how they play. And so we used to do it by memory. Uh, the book on the hitters was all in guys' heads. It wasn't written down any place. And uh, we knew we knew Mays liked the ball away from him. He liked he didn't like the ball inside. Uh, we knew Aaron was a, a dead low ball hitter. Uh, but it was all in the minds of the managers, coaches, and players. The book, so-called book. Now the book is a real book, and it's a, a, a very detailed uh, and extensively detailed account of how this particular hitter hits over 50, 60, 80, 100 times. What's he do? Well, there's patterns that come out of that, and that tells the defense more of accurately where to play. And um, incidentally, I think baseball uh, somehow misses one of their strengths. Defense in baseball is so unbelievable that they don't hype it enough. That it, It's artistic. Defense, infield and outfield. Now, running, catching a long fly ball, that's always been exciting. But um, the infield play, the, the, the way they turn a double play, the the acrobats that play on the infield particularly, there's an art form to that. I mean, it, and if you can appreciate it, you, you see a lot of good baseball that's on the defensive side. And uh, it's just kind of taken for granted. But I think the, the fielding today is as good or better than it's ever been in baseball. That actually uh, brings up a good point, too, because – I've always thought that they uh, devalue defense at the Hall of Fame level. So uh, in that nature, are there any ball players you can think of that uh, should have been more con- considered for the Hall of Fame because of the defense? Gil Hodges. Of Gil course. Hodges, was a, he was a vacuum at first base. He had long arms, big hands, uh, covered a lot of territory. And uh, Gil had – I can't quote his numbers, but uh, he played first base a long time for some really good teams. And uh, he saved a lot of uh, errors, uh, throwing errors from uh, the infielders because uh, he had had great hands. So he's one player that I believe has the stats for the Hall of Fame. He hadn't quite got enough votes yet. Well, hopefully one day 
because it's there's it's not just the defense. There's so many other elements, especially combined with his managerial short shortened by depth his numbers, especially when you look at people um, of of his ilk uh, from contemporaries. I mean, you see, he was. He, he was constantly um, an all-star, constantly in the, the conversation for MVP. And, uh, you know, there, there's just, there's so much here that it's just, it, it bewilders me. Um, you know, we, we've talked about it, for, you know, ad nauseum, but it, it, there's a reason why. It's because uh, it, there has been a, a fundamental flaw in the way people consider um Voting for the Hall of Fame, and I think in Gill's uh, in, in Gill's instance, it comes up in many different levels, including the, the Veterans Committee. And I, I believe you know you can probably shed a little bit more light on this um, than me. But if if I remember correctly, uh, Roy Campanella's vote wasn't counted because he couldn't be yeah, there. Yeah, that yes, that was Roy was of course injured uh, and was in a wheelchair, and he couldn't make one of the meetings. And they wouldn't count his vote because he wasn't present. Uh, the, the rules at that time indicated you, you can't have a write-in vote. If you're a member of the committee, you have to be there. Um, the other thing that I think is somewhat unfair, uh, the Hall of Fame will either induct you as a player or as a manager, but they won't combine your career as a player and manager as a contribution to the game. Hodges was a great player. He became, as everybody knew, even though it was a short career as manager because he died young, but he was a brilliant manager, and he he had a great baseball feel for managing. Uh, I believe they should count both his managerial skills and his playing skills toward uh, voting for the Hall of Fame. But up to now, I don't think you can be voted on except either or. And uh, so that that's one flaw, I think, that the Hall of Fame, their standards, I think, should be the contribution to the game. And that would include both. As it is now, um, you either make it as a player or you make it as a manager only. So that's that's just my take. Yeah, and um, you know, you look at it, and even though it, it you know, he, he went through many different uh, incarnations of teams, including uh, the Dodgers and, and including the LA uh, element of it, um, which of course got a little bit affected by by uh, the Coliseum at the beginning, and then you know, obviously his best years were not with the Mets, but in in total over the course of an 18 year career with 162 game average he averaged 29 home runs and 100 RBIs with a 273 batting average getting on base at a 359 clip slugging 487 i mean you know i i i know that it was a little bit of a, a the the standards were were certainly in terms of the the total number of home runs um is basically just uh, 370 home runs excuse me uh, obviously, I guess it's not the 500 you talk about now in terms of home runs and, and the Hall of Fame, but uh, there are players that they, they focus on a 12-year span, and, and he dominated over from from basically 1948 through uh, 1958. He was a dominant force. Well, he also contributed in such a substantial way to the success of Jackie Robinson. 
Now, Pee Wee, our captain, is in the Hall of Fame. And Pee Wee had an outstanding probably 20-year career at shortstop. He was a clutch player, a real pro. And he did befriend Jackie publicly, which helped Jackie himself uh, become a Hall of Famer. Now, they often said about Pee Wee, he played alongside of Jackie Robinson. So did Gil Hodges on the other side. And Gil was a peacemaker on the field. He would pl- he would pull guys off a, a pile at second base where there was a, a play and a, a lot of physical contact. And sometimes that erupted into what looked like was going to be a fight. And Gil was there. He separated guys, and they respected him. And so it's a stat that doesn't count, but it should count, that Gil not only played great, not only managed great, but he was an essential part of the peacekeeping on the field when Jackie was in his first couple of years. And so I think, you know, that's a stat that doesn't get any mileage. But uh, if you say Pee Wee played alongside Jackie, it has meaning. Well, Gil played alongside Jackie, too. <laughs> I yeah. think that ought to count for something. That is for sure. And, you know, I, I always – from a, a Mets fan perspective, I've, uh, we always hear about the story of, and I believe it was Cleon Jones in the outfield. He kind of dogged it for, for a hot second, and Gill walks all the way out to center field uh, and, and you know, put his arm around him and walked him back out. He didn't, he didn't, say, he didn't have to say much. He just, he, he just uh, said everything he needed to say with his, with his body language, and, and he yeah. was calm, cool, and collected. And, you know, that, uh, that, that that's he, an interesting he, he hustled. He hustled the rest of the year. That's an interesting point about Hodges and his personality. Because in Brooklyn, New York, I don't believe, and I think I can say this with some authority, I don't believe I ever saw a player, including myself, that on some occasion didn't get booed. It was a hotbed of of, of uh, fans that loved their team, and you played bad. They told you you played bad. Gil Hodges to my knowledge, and to anybody else I've ever talked to, never heard Hodges booed, and he was in some tough slumps at times. He was over 21 in the 52 World Series, I think, and it carried over to the next year, and he was uh, slumped early in the season. But he played brilliant defense. Oftentimes when a guy's hitting bad, he didn't play very good defense either. But Hodges weathered those droughts that he had at the plate and the the fans would not boo him because his personality was so genuine and his effort was so pure that they recognized it and in Brooklyn, New York I contend the only player ever to play there and not get booed was Gil Hodges Do you think it's because he married a Brooklyn lady? (laughs) Well, that didn't hurt it. That, that certainly didn't hurt anything because he not only married uh, he not only married Joan, but he lived in Brooklyn all year round, and the rest of us all went back to our hometowns. We we're all on one-year contracts, but uh, Gil actually lived in Brooklyn, and of course married uh, Joan in uh, in Brooklyn, raised his family in Brooklyn, and. Uh, the story goes that when he was over 19 or 21 or something in the series, 
and it carried over to the next year um, that it was a hot day and no air conditioning in Gill's church, Catholic church. So the priest said that day, look, it's too hot for a sermon. So go home, say your prayers, and pray for Gil Hodges. <laughs> By golly, <laughs> he broke out of that slump after that. And I'm a Baptist, but I said, boy, he must, Gil must have something going on here. Yep. No, he, he obviously, the divine healing helped in that situation. It, it, it's great. And I, you know, we're just getting our, our uh, feet once again wet uh, here on the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, but we, we must wrap it up. But, uh, uh, Carl, I think that, that that's uh, always a fantastic time, and that's a good place to, to end. Uh, thank you so much. And I'm, I'm sure that we'll, if we don't talk before the end of the, uh, the year, then uh, we should be uh, we should be talking uh, at some point in, in the new year. But happy birthday! Yeah, thank you so much. Well, let me tell you one thing, Sam. I I have a grateful heart that I played in New York. I played at Brooklyn. I played with one of the great teams of all times. I played with some of the most historic players, uh, like Jackie. Uh, I'm forever grateful that uh, whatever happened, that Mr. Ricky signed me at about the same time he signed Jackie, and I got to play with this fantastic team and call them all f- close friends, and they're all gone now. The whole team on the 55 World Series is gone except four pitchers, Newcomb, Koufax, Erskine, mm-hmm. and uh, I think uh, Roger Craig. Sam, thank you so much. Carl, it's it's always a pleasure, and you're uh, you're truly a a, a light that shines uh, for all of us. So I, we very much appreciate it. Thank you, Carl. Thank you very much. Bye bye. Thank you all for tuning in to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. Have a great one. Take care.